indulge ourselves on three verses that are full and overflowing with promise. We saw last week that Peter opens, opened his uh, letter even before he got to his greeting with the doctrine of election to assure these exiles that they are not alone, that God is with them, that God is for them, that though they might be rejected by the world, they are welcomed of their father. Now, as he gets into his letter, what he is intending to do here is to fill them with hope breathtaking hope, hope that he intends to encourage and sustain them through their days of exile and to do the same for us because quite honestly we're going to need this. We're going to need this vision of a better world in order to survive the world as we know it. Every Kentuckian knows and loves our state song, My Old Kentucky Home, but I, I wonder how many know the story behind it. It's telling a story. Um, of an African-American family that is so happy with their life in Kentucky. Um, which that opening verse tells us, the sun shines bright in my old Kentucky home to summer and everyone is gay, everyone is happy. The corn tops ripe, the meadows are in bloom, the birds make music all the day, the young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy and bright. It's describing their life in their Kentucky home and how wonderful it is. But then the, the song takes a turn and says that hard times come knocking at the door. And what he's talking about there is the financial troubles that came and forced them to be sold to the plantations of the Deep South. And their new life on these plantations is obviously miserable. And so the way that they are consoling themselves in slavery and the sufferings of slavery, is with memories of their old Kentucky home. That's what the chorus is saying. Weep no more, my lady, oh, weep no more today. Why? Because we will sing one song. Instead, let's sing one song for my old Kentucky home, my old Kentucky home far away. It's this longing for their home far away. And it's this dream, it's this vision of their home that sustains them in their slavery. And that whole concept really took over the slave communities and, and um, actually gave us an entire genre of music, these Negro spirituals, which came into being as a coping mechanism to the harsh realities of slavery. As they slaved away on these plantations, they would sing to each other. They would tell each other words of hope Words that lifted their eyes off of the world as they knew it and onto a world as they longed to know it. They dreamed of a better place and it sustained them in their slavery. That's what Peter is doing for exiles in our passage. He opens his letter with a glorious vision of a different world, another world. And in this way, he lifts our eyes off of these days of exile and on to the coming days of hope. And it is this vision of glory that will sustain us in the days and years to come. I would like for us to meditate on three thoughts this morning. The surety of our hope, verse 3, 
the supremacy of our hope, verse 4, the security of our hope, verse 5. So, surety, supremacy, security. The surety of our hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That phrase, born again, comes from Jesus Himself in John 3, as you probably know. And the imagery speaks of the uniqueness of Christian conversion. Every religion, every worldview, every philosophy is competing for your conversion. And Jesus is no different. He wants to convert you. I, as a minister in his name, would like to convert you to Jesus. But when Jesus speaks of conversion, when the Bible speaks of conversion, it speaks of it in a very radical way. It's not a change in your life, but a new life, a rebirth, born again. Unlike conventional understandings of conversions, followers of Jesus, it, 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 it is not... It does not become a different way of doing this life. It's a new life. It's not a new worldview. It's a new world. He calls it the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that there is another hidden reality in and among the kingdom of this world called the kingdom of God. And, and by faith, through faith, we are born into this new reality. And Peter will talk much about this call as we live out our lives in the kingdom of God in this world, he will talk about the demands and calls and expectations and applications of that. But before he talks about the expectations of our new birth, he speaks first about the hope of our new birth. He says we are born again unto a living hope. You see, the world that we know, the world as we know it, knows nothing but dead hope. Hope is illusory. It is something we comfort ourselves with, but in the end proves vain. Whether it be wealth or power or fame or family or career or legacy that you want to leave or your morality, your name, whatever it is you are finding your identity in, whatever you're hoping in, Whatever that choice is for you, your choice is going to die. Even if that death is your own death. We don't like to read depressing philosophers like Nietzsche. But nobody can ever refute their logic. This is a vain, depressing reality that we inhabit. And this notion of hope, we tell ourselves, is nothing but vain, dead hope. But Peter is saying this. We are those born again into a different world. And within that world, unlike this world, hope actually is a living thing. This concept of hope that ultimately eludes us in this world, it's actually alive in the world of our rebirth. And the reason we can be so sure and confident that our hope in our world is the one exception is that God has proven it already by raising His Son from the dead. Peter says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christians have all of their hope bound up in Jesus. And so when they crucified and buried Him, 
it would seem on that dark Saturday that um, our hope has gone the way of the world. Just another hope that is in vain. But something remarkable happened. This hope rose from its own death. And it means that Jesus is literally the only option that actually has proven to you worthy of your hope. It's no longer wishful thinking. It happened. On Easter morning, Jesus surprised this world with the one and only hope that is stronger than death. So it's not wishful thinking. It's true thinking, proven by the resurrection of the Son. So what that means is you can attack... You can attack your hope with your doubts and skepticism. All you won't, you won't be able to kill it. Your doubts can't nullify that you have a living hope. This world can mock our hope as naive and silly, but all the mockery in the world cannot kill it. Because our doubts... And the world scorn can never undo the reality that Jesus actually is risen. So our hope is real. It is sure. But how good is it? In other words, we're thankful that our hope is living, that it is sure. But is our hope even worth hoping in? This is where Peter takes us next. The supremacy of our hope. Verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If that language there uh, seems odd to you, it probably should. Peter um, intentionally is wording it a little differently. Um, he describes our inheritance with these negations. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Why not phrase in the positive, in other words, instead of calling it undefiled, why not call it pure? Well, what Peter is doing here is he is drawing our attention, he's drawing upon the language of our experience, what we have come to expect in this world. As I said in the first point, everything we hope for in this world ultimately will prove to be a dead hope. Our hope was ultimately in vain. But even before we witness the death of our hope, our hope disappoints us. That is, even when we have these things that we hope in, that we find our identity and significance in, even when we have them, they fail us. To use the language of Peter, everything is perishing. Everything is defiled. Everything is fading. Everything. Things as big as cultures and nations and markets and institutions all the way to things as small as my own health and my possessions, the, the bathroom that Abby and I are remodeling for our 10-year anniversary that looks so lovely to us now but will one day break and be out of style. And somebody else will buy the house and say, that's ugly, and tear it down and start over again. And so it shall go because that's the world we live in. It's depressing, but it's true. It's not just that everything we hope in will one day die. We have to watch it die. We have to endure this perishing, defiled, and fading existence of ours. 
But Peter is promising the hope of the opposite. That's why he does it that way. He takes what we've come to expect and he negates it. He's promising the opposite. In essence, mocking this fallen world with his promise of, no, 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 imperishable, undefiled, unfading. There's something else to this strange phrasing that he's using. What it does is it retains what we love about this world only without its corruption. Here's what I mean. He doesn't say to an inheritance that is celestial or mysterious or otherworldly or spirituals floating around in clouds or whatever else some other religion promises you as hope. Instead, his promise is simply the removal of the curse, the removal of everything that harms what we love about this wonderful world and life that we live. It's not that Peter is promising something entirely different. He is promising us all that we know, all that we know and love but without the threat of it ever perishing, defiling, or fading. In other words, he's promising the glorification of our experience or the supremacy of our experience. This experience, but supreme. So imagine love, but perfect love. The fullness of love without those things that we have grown accustomed to corrupting love, betrayal, jealousy, coveting, selfishness, anger, all these things that are constantly ruining love. Imagine love without that. Imagine community, fellowship, but perfect community. The fullness of fellowship without these things that we have, a grown, we have grown accustomed to corrupting community, prejudice, slander, hatred, violence, and all these different things. Imagine joy. Imagine the joys of this life, but perfect joy, the fullness of joy, without these things that we have grown accustomed to corrupting joy, boredom, disappointment, tears, regret. Imagine health, but perfect health, the fullness of health, perfect physical bodies without those things we have grown accustomed to corrupting health, aging, arthritis, dementia, cancer, ultimately death. What he's doing here is he's saying our inheritance, our heavenly inheritance is not something that we can never imagine. It is exactly what we love about this glorious existence only with the negation of everything we despise about this fallen existence. It is this life, only this life supreme. The surety of hope the supremacy of hope, and finally and very importantly, the security of our hope. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice those two action words. Did you, did you catch that? The action words, the verbs here of the text, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Our inheritance is kept 
for us who are being guarded. So our hope is completely secure as God is keeping it for us. And we are completely secure as God is guarding us for its inheritance. And that assurance is so important because listen, Christians will tell you that what we struggle with is not necessarily whether God's promises are true, but whether God's promises are true for me. We believe the first point, God's hope is sure. Jesus is risen from the dead to a living hope, it's true. We believe the second point, God's hope is supreme. Indeed, there is, there is coming a day that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We believe that. But deep down, we wonder whether, in the end, God's hope is secure. And do you know why that is? Because we have proven over and over and over again our ability to mess up any and everything good in our life. Point one, this world has taught us that hope is in vain, hope is dead. Point two, this world, experience in this world has taught us that everything is corrupting. Point three, life in this world has taught us that we mess everything up. And so we fear it. It sounds so amazing. It sounds so amazing. But knowing me, my track record... I'm sure I'll screw it up somehow. Perhaps it's marriage, perhaps it's parenting, perhaps it's friendship, perhaps it's finances, perhaps it's an addiction you can't break. Whatever it is, these habits in, in your life and in this world, this life has taught us that nothing is secure from my ability to mess it up. And so here comes this gospel with sure and supreme promise of hope and deep down we're conflicted. Sounds amazing. Oh, how badly I want it to be true, but I know myself and my ability to mess up a good thing. So we fear that in the end, all this glorious hope will elude us, or perhaps a better way to state that is that we will elude it. Well, and perhaps the best news of it all in this text, Peter tells us, that unlike everything else in your life, this is the one thing you're not going to be able to mess up. And we know that because it's not you who's doing it. Look again at the grammar. It's very intentional and very important. Our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. You aren't keeping it. He's keeping it for you. Who by God's power are being guarded you're not guarding yourself with your own power. God, by his power, is guarding you. And notice how Peter even views our faith. We tend to think of faith as the one thing that we've got to do. We've got to hold on to faith. I've got to have a strong faith. Can't have doubts. Can't have duplicity in my life. I've got to have a strong and pure and perfect faith. Notice how Peter views faith. We are being guarded by God's power through faith. In other words, your faith is the instrument that God is using to guard you and keep you. Even your faith is of him. And so, can you mess things up in this life? Of course. <laughs> I have a long track record to show you that that is the case. But that's not the question here. 
Your strength and ability has no bearing on this discussion. Go back to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he being blessed? Why is he being praised? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who is the subject and who is the direct object of your living hope? God has caused us to be born again. From beginning to end, this is of God. Therefore, from beginning to end, this is all secure. Now, what this means, brothers and sisters, is that with, without fear and hesitation, you may now lose yourself in hope. Just let your longings go wild. Indulge it. Revel in it. Get carried away with promise. Because it's coming for you. And you can't stop it. That last phrase of verse 5, I love it. It is ready to be revealed to you. It is coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it, Christian. And if this hope is not yours, I suppose if, you know, if you are not to use the language of born again, which I know, by the way, born again in our culture carries so, uh, so many negative connotations of like, Born-again Christians being like angry, fundamentalist, mean Christians or something like that. Which is such a shame because this born-again thing is so beautiful that you're born into a living hope. Think of it that way. If you're not born again into this living hope, you're not a follower of Jesus, why in heaven's name not? This much I know is true of your life. Everything this passage is promising, the opposite is true for what you're living for. I don't know you. I don't know what you're living for. I don't know what you're hoping. In. Unlike this hope that is alive, your hope is going to prove dead. Unlike this hope that is corruptible, that is incorruptible, that cannot be defiled, that cannot fade, your hope is corruptible. It is fading away. Unlike this hope that I can't mess up, that Christians can't mess up, your hope is oh so fragile, one bad decision away from you messing the whole thing up. So the invitation is to repent of these lesser hopes and be born again into a living hope. Join us. You're going to have to join us in exile. But you get to join us as we rightfully live with our heads in the clouds. That term heads in the clouds in our world carries with it a naive and even negative connotation. Rightfully so. Because, as I have said throughout this sermon, it seems like a denial of reality. It seems like people who live with their heads in the clouds are just ignoring reality. And normally that's so. Let me read for you um, the verse the final verse of my old Kentucky home that we never seen because it is utterly depressing and it would ruin all the nostalgia. The third stanza takes this turn where the writer who is dreaming of my old Kentucky home and it's sustaining them and they're suffering, they get really real. <laughs> they get very cynical and honest. The head must bow and the back will have to bend wherever the darky may go. 
a few more days and the trouble all will end. He's not saying I'll be free from slavery. He's saying a few more days and I'll get to die. A few more days and this trouble will end in the field where the sugar canes grow. He's just waiting to keel over and die in the plantation. A few more days to tote the weary load. No matter, twill never be light. Never see light. A few more days till we totter on this road. And then my old Kentucky home, good night. He is admitting that the dream of my old Kentucky home is exactly that, a dream, a fantasy. Something to console ourselves with as we try to get through a few more days until we get to say goodbye. Not just to this cruel existence, but to the dream of any hope, to the dream of returning to my old Kentucky home. My old Kentucky home, good night. And this world has taught you that this is the nature of hope. It's a nice thing to keep you going. But it will never come true. So people with their heads in the cloud are just denying reality. And not being honest with how things are. But Peter in the gospel is telling us that the script has been flipped. That not having your head in the clouds is a denial of reality. And to be despondent and cynical and fearful and doubting, that's not being a savvy realist. That's a denial of what is true. Biblically speaking, having your head in the clouds is not naive. It is right and true. It is demanded. It is the serious business of people of hope to live in this world with this strange rapture about us. So which story does your life tell? Does your life, and I'm saying everything from your words to your very countenance, tell the story of dead, corruptible, and unsecure hope? Or does your life tell the story of a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept secure in heaven for you. Let's be this together. Come on, church. Let's be this together. That weird community with this peculiar hope that doesn't make sense to this world but makes perfect sense to us. Let me pray. Lord, make us that people walking around this world with a peace and a joy that transcends all our understanding, that, that, that defies our circumstances. And uh, we admit that we can't self-produce that. It'll be cheesy self-help talk if we try. We need you to fill us with your hope. And Lord, this meal that we are coming to promises to do that. Nourish us, nourish our hearts with the hope that is living, that will never be defiled or fade away, that is kept in heaven for us who are being guarded by faith. Feed us because we need the nourishment. In Jesus' name, amen.